pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the gathering of your people. Um, Lord, we pray for those who are absent from us this morning, that you would be with them, that you would encourage their hearts, that you would draw them close to you, that you would protect them from the evil one. Lord, we pray as we enter your word this morning, as we continue to think about the office of church member, oh Lord God, and uh, we, you, you say in 1 Corinthians 12 through the Apostle Paul that we're members of a body. Uh, we need each other. No one can say that we have no need of one another. So Lord, we just pray that you would help us as we dwell in that truth, as we think about the job that you've given to us, Lord God, help us to carry that out because we love you and because we love our brothers and sisters. Lord, help us this morning. Give us Give me clarity, give us understanding, and Lord, grant us hearts of obedience. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, our scripture reading this morning is Ephesians 4, Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. This will figure into our discussion this morning, although it won't be the only passage that we look at. But uh, when you find your place in Ephesians 4, I'm going to start in verse 1 and read through verse 16. And because we believe that when the scripture speaks, God speaks, go ahead and stand with me. For the reading of God's word, if you are able. Ephesians 4, starting in verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But they had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes." Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, we started last week with a break from our series in Matthew um, to talk about church offices, church offices. And we started to argue that really there's three church offices, and we started with the first. We started last week talking and arguing that a church member is a church office. And then the next couple weeks, so we finished today, the second part of membership, and then this, the next couple weeks we'll talk about elders, and then the next couple weeks after that we'll talk about deacons. Now, what is a church office? Uh, I included a definition, I thought a good one, from Wayne Grudem in his Systematic Theology last week, and I reprinted that this morning. But what is a church office? When we talk about a church officer, what does that mean? A church officer is someone who has been publicly recognized as having the right and responsibility to perform certain functions for the benefit of the whole church. 
That's what a church officer is. But if you follow that definition to its logical conclusion, and if you look at what we saw last week about every saint being given the office of priest, then that definition also applies to the saints. It applies to those who are publicly installed into office as church members. Now, again, you might be thinking, why are we having a series on church offices? That just seems kind of academic, seems not that important. I just remind you what we said last week of why we were talking about this. Multiple reasons, but here's kind of the big picture. Uh, If you've ever been in an organization or a job where your roles were not clearly defined, then chaos ensues, inefficiency in whatever the goal of that organization is. Well, the church is an organization. It is an organization organized by Christ. And he has given a structure to it. He has given responsibilities within it. For what purpose? For the purpose of the Great Commission, to proclaim the gospel to all the nations. But what happens if the local church isn't isn't following the structure that Jesus has given towards it? Well, then it's not operating in a healthy way. And what happens? Christ is dishonored and the Great Commission is hampered. And so that is the overarching reason why we're talking about this. We all need to know, members, elders, and deacons, what is our job? How do we work together in a way that honors and pleases you? How do we work together, Lord Jesus, in a way that honors and pleases you? It also, as we look ahead to the new year in our annual meeting, that's when we affirm uh, the next cycle of elders, deacons, and deaconesses. But before we do that, who, what, what is all of our job? How do we act? How do we interact? How do we work together? Who should we be looking for? That is why we are going through this. So last week I argued that church members have an office. It's the office of priest king. And the idea is uh, a priest is someone who declares the holy from the unholy, from the holy and the common, between the clean and the unclean. But just like Adam, there is the role of priest and there is also a stewardship rule under Christ, and that is true of every saint within the church, not just individually, but jointly and collectively. Now, we established that church members have an office last week, but we didn't really talk about what the office entails. If we were to carry on with the analogy of a job, um, what's the job posting? Uh, What are the duties? What are the uh, things that each this job of member is supposed to do? And so that's what we're going to talk about this week. But just like a job posting, when you get a job posting, it doesn't specify every single nitty-gritty detail of what that's going to look like, nor are we going to spell out every nitty-gritty detail of what it looks like to be a member this morning. But what we are going to do is give the main bullet points, just like a job posting. Here is what Jesus wants you to do, and I'm going to argue that from the scriptures. Now, in what we are talking about, if you want more Uh, to read more about this, you want to think more about this, I recommended a couple books last week. I'll recommend them again this week. Understanding the Congregation's Authority by Jonathan Lehman. Small little book, good read. Uh, If you want a little bit meatier of a read, Rediscover Church by Jonathan Lehman and Colin Hansen. Great books. Uh, You can come see me after if you are interested in reading more. But here's the big idea for this morning as we start to look through the scriptures, and it's this. Church members do their priestly work by making disciples. Church members do their work, their priestly work, by making disciples. Now, as soon as I say that, and as soon as I start talking about making disciples, you probably know where I'm going. I'm going to Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Um, By the time we get to Matthew 28, 18, and 20 in our series in Matthew, I'll have preached it like 20 times probably. 
but it is a foundational text. We keep coming back there. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And I'll start in verse 16, just to give a little context. And what I'm going to do, we're not going to spend our entire time in this text this morning, uh, but I'm going to look at this as kind of the, the, capsule, the encapsulated function of the church and the church membership. And then I'm going to expand that out into our points this morning and kind of explain each one of those individually. So let's just start with reading this text, Matthew 28, eight, uh, Matthew 28, verse 16. Now the 11 disciples, so here is the foundation of the church, the apostles, after Judas is betrayed and um, committed suicide. Here's the foundation of the church. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, what is Jesus doing? He has shown himself, he has been installed as the uh, Son of God in power after the resurrection. He, he, he shows himself to be the ultimate Adam, the ultimate king, the ultimate David. And he shares authority with his father. And based on that authority in verse 19, uh, there is one command. Now, your translation probably says something like go. And uh, actually, it's the idea of going. It's a prerequisite. Going is a prerequisite. What's the main command? The main command is make disciples. What is a disciple? What is a disciple? A disciple is a follower and learner of Jesus. It's, uh, the idea is you've submitted to Jesus, you've entrusted yourself to him, and you follow him, and you obey him. Because notice what Jesus says, make disciples of all nations... That is the first and fundamental thing. And then he's just going to elaborate on that when he talks about baptizing and teaching. So first, our first pit stop, as we talk about what is, what is the goal of the members? What is the job um, posting? What is the, the job that they're supposed to do? Well, the first thing we have to start talking about is that members as priests proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. Members as priests proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. Now you're like, well, I see make disciples here, but I don't see proclaim the gospel. Well, this is where we have the rest of the context of Matthew to explain this to us. What has Jesus done? What has John the Baptist done? What has Jesus' disciples done through this whole time? He has, he has, uh, he has called for what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. That has been the message he has proclaimed. It is the gospel of the kingdom. The kingdom has come near. In what sense? In the sense that the king, Jesus, came near. He lived as a man on this earth. And he healed and he showed foretaste of here's what the future kingdom's gonna look like. It's gonna be glorious. But what's the proper response? Repentance and turning your allegiance from sin and self and placing it in Jesus. Repentance and faith, flip sides of the same coin. And so when Jesus even, um, when, when that happens, when you repent and believe, you're automatically a disciple. There's no difference between a disciple and a believer, they're one and the same. And even Jesus, when he called his original disciples in Matthew 4, he says, I'm going to make you fishers of people, meaning what? Uh, here's the message by which you became a disciple. Now, to redistribute that same message to make disciples, to make followers and learners of Jesus. What's amazing about this is that this is priestly work. You're like, what do you mean by that? 
Well, go to 1 Peter 2. When we talk about the proclamation of the gospel, that all of Jesus' disciples are to make disciples, and how do they do that? They do that through the proclamation of a message, the gospel. That is priestly work. How do I know that? Well, go to 1 Peter 2, and go to 1 Peter 2, starting in verse 9. We read this passage last week. And there the, Peter gives the imagery of saints become the temple, right? The church means assembly and the local temple, the local assembly assembles on a Sunday uh, when we gather for the preaching of the word, for the practice of the ordinances, etc. But let's pick it up in 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That's what we argued last week. You have the office of priesthood, a people for his own possession. That what? To what end? that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you see it? You're a chosen race. You're a holy priesthood. What do you do? As priests, you proclaim the message of the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus has drawn near. The true king has drawn near. He has died. He has resurrected. He has ascended. He is at the right hand of God, and he is the one mediator between God and man, such that if you repent and place your faith in him, you can be saved from the son's wrath, from Jesus' wrath, and be reconciled to the triune God, to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And now you're given a job. You're given the job of being a proclaimer likewise. Put it succinctly, if we think about the church as the temple and the priesthood, how does that church grow? It grows through the word. It grows through the word. James 1.18 talks about, by his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a sort of first fruits. It's the word and the going forth of the word. Just like God sent forth a word at creation, let there be light and there was light. It created, God created that reality as the gospel go forth. God uses that as a means to say, let there be light in someone's heart. And they are changed and they are brought into the priesthood to proclaim the same message to others. That is the fundamental job of members. Members as priests proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. But you might ask, well, okay, but what, ha what happens when one does repent and believe? What happens? Well, Jesus actually gives instructions to that back in Matthew 28. Remember I said that we're kind of looking at Matthew 28 as the summary, but then that expands out. So notice what Jesus says, verse 19, Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Okay, we get that. We need to proclaim the gospel. But Jesus elaborates more. What does it mean to make a disciple? It doesn't stop when someone just says, I repent and believe in Jesus. And you don't just say, great, go on your merry way. No. What's the next step? Baptism. Baptism. That's what those participles there after make disciples are supposed to do. They're supposed to explain. Here's how. Here's part of the process of making a disciple. Baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Immersing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, that's significant language because notice what Jesus is saying, baptizing them into, not just in, the preposition there in Greek is into, but into what? Into a name. What name? 
the, the, the singular name of the three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity, are working together to create a people. And when one confesses and places their faith in Jesus, Jesus wants them to go public with that faith in the waters of baptism. Because that's the public installation ceremony. Yes, you proclaim repentance and faith, but that's not a private event. It's not designed to be a private event. Remember what Jesus said earlier in Matthew, whoever confesses me before men, I will confess before my Father in heaven. Whoever does not confess me before men, I will not confess before my Father in heaven. The idea is that Jesus, when one repents and believes, how are you installed into office? How are you shown publicly to be part of the family, the family of the triune God? Jesus' design, not Chris's design, not some man's design, Jesus' design is that they go through the waters of baptism into the name, the possession, the belonging of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. What is happening in the waters of baptism is you're saying, I'm dying with Christ, I'm being drowned, the old me is being drowned, and I am rising again with Christ, and I'm given new life in the triune God. In fact, that's how all original believers and members of the church were recognized was baptism. Paul says in Galatians 3.27, as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. So someone doesn't get baptized, say, hey, I repent and believe in Jesus, but I don't get baptized. It's like, yeah, I serve for the military, but I'm not willing to put on the uniform. That is what Jesus means. He uses that language of clothing. As many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. It's your identity with Christ. It's your uniform. It's your job uniform to show up to work. If you identify with Christ, you therefore identify with his body, his brothers and sisters. Turn to Acts 2. Acts 2, the birthday of the church, day of Pentecost. Day of Pentecost. And you know what happens on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit falls on the church. The temple is indwelt by the Holy Spirit for the first time. The gathering of the people is, is established. This new covenant community is birthed. And, G, uh, and Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit, and he gives a sermon. So what Peter does in his sermon is a Spirit-inspired sermon. So it's not just Peter's words. It's not just Peter's good ideas. It's the Spirit-spoken word through Peter. And what does Peter say? We, we, we know he runs through the gospel. He runs through Jesus as the Messiah. He runs through his death and resurrection. But then what's the call? What's the call at the end? Acts 2.37 now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom our, the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word, now Luke is talking, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. How are you installed into membership into the local church? The first time it happens, it happens through the waters of baptism. Notice 241. They were baptized and they were added to the church. How did they know? Because they counted how many they were baptizing and those same were added to the church. 
you put on the, the job uniform, you are installed into office initially through water baptism. Now, you might be scratching your head for a second. It's like, why does it have to be water? Why does it have to be immersion? Why does it have to happen that way? Well, let me give you a brief flyover, very broad, 30,000-foot level flyover of a theology of baptism, because it doesn't start in the New Testament. It starts in the Old. It starts in the Old. If you remember, how did things begin? God spoke. The universe came into existence, and there's the world, but the world starts covered with water. And then what arises out of that water? A new creation, and not just a new creation, but a priest king and his wife, Adam. Fast forward to the flood. The world is once again covered with water. It's washed, cleansed of its evil. And then what comes out of the floodwaters, a new or renewed creation with a priest king, Noah, and his family. Fast forward to Israel. Israel is called out from Egypt through the Exodus. And it goes through some waters. It goes through the Reed Sea. And then it comes out through that Reed Sea, and then it goes to Mount Sinai, and it is called a priestly, a kingdom of priests. A new nation is born. And then fast forward, even within that nation, there is priests. And you know what had to happen before the high priest, before the sons of Aaron took their office? A whole body washing. Because that matches. To be installed into office, you need to be washed. And then you can function and be installed into office as a priest king. Go to Jesus' baptism. Hey, you remember how, like, at Jesus' baptism, there's, like, a, um, a dove that comes and like hovers over Jesus that represents the Holy Spirit. Well, that's supposed to remind us of the original creation and what happened in Noah's Ark. It's the same picture. Jesus is being installed, so to speak, as a priest, a priest king, the ultimate priest king. And that happens again. Go to Hebrews with every believer, with every believer into Jesus, the ultimate priest king. They're given an office, and they're installed in that office through the waters of baptism. Go to Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. Now, when Jesus is talking about, when the author of Hebrews is talking about the holy places, he's talking about like the inner sanctum where God's presence dwells. But he's not just talking about the copy. He's talking about the reality in heaven. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, he's the high priest. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled killing from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. How are you installed into office? ordination as a priest through the waters of baptism. Why? Because the priest has to be cleansed, 
publicly displaying he's been cleansed, not because of the water itself, no, but because of what Jesus has done on the cross to cleanse a sinner and then to give him or her a job and install them into office, which is why at Faith Bible Church, we tie membership closely with baptism. We have a few baptisms coming up in the coming weeks, and what will happen is as that person is going into water and coming out, yes, they are identifying with Christ, they are identifying with the universal church, and this local church as a local embassy is saying, yes, we affirm you, and you're installed into a job, into office as priest king in this local church as a member. Now, it's not like you need to be rebaptized every time you go to another local church, but the idea is there's evaluation and there's a public there's a public saying, I identify with Christ, and I want to be held accountable by this church. That's what happened with Bruce and Emily and Anna. And over the past few weeks, as we've had memberships coming up here, they're sharing their testimony. Here's how Christ saved me. Here's how he cleansed me. Will you welcome me in? Will you covenant with me to follow Christ as a disciple? So, job of a member. Members as priests proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. Members as priests install new priests through baptism. Note that that's not an individual. I can't just go and baptize someone and say, you're in. Who does the baptizing in Matthew 28? It's the church. And so it's the church who baptizes that joint responsibility as members together, welcoming in a new person. But uh, third, as far as a job description that we even see in Matthew 28, members as priests teach one another to obey Jesus. Members as priests teach one another to obey Jesus. Go back to Matthew 28. Again, we're just kind of launching from there, expanding the ideas that Jesus mentions. Matthew 28, what does he say? Go therefore and make disciples. Okay, that's our central command. Make disciples of all nations. How do we do that? Well, we do that through the proclamation of the gospel and then baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then what? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Not only do we baptize, but we teach, which makes sense because what is a disciple? A disciple is a follower and learner of Jesus, which means you are committed to Jesus, you're committed to following him, which means you need to learn what he commands. And that is the job of the church. That is the job of members. That is the job of members. Uh, If you were to go back, you don't have to go there, but if you were to go back to Leviticus 10, when the first priesthood, the first Aaronic priesthood is being installed, it talks about how the priests are to... Teach and distinguish between the holy and the common, between the clean and between the unclean. They're to teach. That's one of the priest's fundamental jobs. Well, that's exactly the same thing in the New Testament. Go back to Ephesians 4, which we read at the beginning this morning. And I'll pick it up in verse 11. And we're going to come back here next week when we start talking about elders. But Ephesians 4.11 says this, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to do what? To equip the saints to do or for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Who does the work of ministry? The members do. The saints do. Because why? They're the priests. How do they do it? Well, as you read through this, 
Skipping down to verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. How does the church grow? It grows through the word of God, ministered to by, by the priests, by the saints, by the members. So though I, as an elder, and we'll talk about this more next week, and the other elders have a particular role in equipping the members of Faith Bible Church are to build up the church. The body builds itself up in love. Doing what? Teaching, doing what exactly Jesus commissioned to do, teaching to observe all that Jesus commanded. So, members as priests proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. Members as priests install new priests through baptism. Members as priests teach one another to obey Jesus. Now, if we were to camp on that idea of obedience, there would be two very particular commands that, are, that we need to talk about. And so that's our next two points. As we are teaching one another to follow and to obey Jesus, there are very two particular commands that he would have us give attention to. And so that's our next point as we look more about what does it mean to obey Jesus? Well, a very key aspect of obedience is this. Members as priests affirm partnership in Christ through the Lord's table. Memberships, members as priests affirm partnership in Christ through the Lord's table. Go to Luke 22. If we're going to talk about, well, what did Jesus command? right? That's what he says, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. Well, what did he command? He commanded many things. Uh, you know, if you think about those five discourse sections in Matthew, those five main teaching sections that he's taught his disciples, that's, that's a good summary of a lot of his teaching. But right before he went to the cross, right before he died in behalf of his people, what did he do? He gave a very particular command, a very central command. Luke 22, starting in verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now mark that. Jesus is intentionally tying what he's about to do with the Passover. What was the Passover? That was the meal that in connection with the death of the firstborn in Egypt that rescued Israel from Egypt and established them as a people, established the old covenant community, established the old covenant assembly. So mark that. Verse 16, for I tell you, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So you see the command. Here is the foundation of the church, the apostles sitting around the table. And Jesus is giving them an instruction. You need to do this. You need to obey this all of you, corporately. And when we talk about remembrance here, this isn't just like, oh yeah, I forgot to add that to my grocery list, and now I remember. 
When we talk about remembrance like this, this is what we call covenantal remembrance. What do you mean? You're like, what do you mean by that? Well, remember when God creates a covenant with Noah after the flood, and he says, I'm going to put my rainbow in the sky. And when I, God, see it in the sky, I'm going to remember my covenant with you. Now, does God forget? Of course God doesn't forget. What is God doing? He's saying, I'm going to actively call to mind my promises to you and my rescue of you. That's the sort of remembrance we're talking about here. It's a remembrance of God's covenant. And you can see that this is the case because notice what Jesus says next in verse 20 in Luke. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. You know, the reality is, as you walk through scripture, each covenant has a sign. So if you think about the Abrahamic covenant, there's the sign of circumcision. If you think about the Noahic covenant, the sign is the rainbow. If you think about the Israelite covenant, the covenant made at Sinai, the sign is the Sabbath. If you think about the Davidic covenant, the sign is the temple. Covenants have signs. Why? Because you're showing by partaking in that sign, you're a member of the covenant. So even in the Old Testament, if you go back to, we're not going to go there, but if you were to go back to Exodus 12, 43 through 49, only the covenant community, only those who had been circumcised could partake in the Passover. Why? Because God wants a distinct, definable, and visible people. The Passover is the central act by which God is redeeming a people for himself in the Old Testament, and he's marking them off from the world. And he says, no foreigner may eat of it. If a foreigner wants to eat of it, he's got to be circumcised. He's got to take on the mark of the covenant. And it's the same way in the New Testament. Taking of, the, taking of our new covenant Passover meal, taking of the Lord's table is the new covenant sign. So every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, you're coming up and you're saying, yes, I'm part of the new covenant people. But not just, yeah, I self-select to be a new covenant people. The church is saying, we are in partnership with this person who's partaking with us. It is not an individual act. It is a corporate act. Go to 1 Corinthians 10. We don't have time to go through all of the Corinthian passages, but you could look at 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34, but I'm going to take you to 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 22. 1 Corinthians 10, 14. Paul says this, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a partnership in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a partnership in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake in the tape of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? What is Paul's point? He's saying, you know, Corinthians, if you go to the idol's temple and you sit down to eat, your partners not only with that idol and the demon behind it, your partners with those who are false worshipers. 
Because the idea of eating together is a partnership. It's a partnership. Or he says, look at the priests of Israel. We're talking about priesthood, right? Look at the priests of Israel. Uh, they, they, um, the priests, they eat of the altar together because they're part of the same priesthood. They're partners together. And then what does he say about the church? When you eat, you are partners together in what? The portrayal of the gospel. Christ's body broken, Christ's blood shed to make not just individuals, but a people, a people. And so every time the church partakes in the Lord's Supper, remember we say, wait until we're all sitting down and we can eat together. Why? Because this is a family meal. This is a priestly meal that we're partaking together. This is the new covenant sign. And as a church, anyone who partakes in the Lord's Supper, we are affirming by our actions as a disciple of Jesus. By a, as a new covenant member. And I'll say here that unless you've been baptized, you ought not to partake in the Lord's Supper because that's where you go public with your faith. That's the entry marker into the family. That's the installation into the priesthood. If you say, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't want to be baptized, I don't know who you are. I have no idea who you are because you're not willing to obey Jesus in going public with your faith in the way that he prescribed. But it's not only that members as priests affirm partnership in Christ through the Lord's table. Finally, as we talk about broad categories of job descriptions, members as priests guard the sanctuary through discipline. Members as priests guard the sanctuary through discipline. Do you remember last week when we were talking about Adam in the garden? And we said, hey, he's a priest king. How do we know that? Because this language in Genesis 2.15 of him working the garden, working this primordial temple, but also guarding it. Guarding it. Guarding it from things like this evil, deceiving serpents. Part of being a priest, we said, those two words, working and guarding. Well, how do, how do, how do new covenant members guard the, the temple, the local church. Well, first, they guard its doctrine. They guard its teaching. They guard the gospel. Paul will say in Galatians, he'll talk to the whole Galatian church, and he'll say, I'm shocked that you're departing from the gospel I gave to you. What are you doing? You need to guard the gospel. And part of that is also what we have talked about in Matthew 18, and we'll look at in 1 Corinthians 5, which you can turn to if you want, you guard the what of the gospel and the who of the gospel. Jesus in Matthew 18, you don't have to turn there, but just to remind you, Jesus in Matthew 18 gives the local church the keys of the kingdom. He says, you have the authority to say, here is teaching that is binding on you, and you need to obey it if you're going to follow Jesus. And if you don't follow Jesus' commands that he's given to us, we're going to remove our affirmation of you as a disciple. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 18. He gave the authority to do the job. And then in 1 Corinthians 5, you see them doing the job. You see Paul exhorting a local church to do the job, to guard the gospel. Because the gospel is not only a what, it's a who. The gospel creates a people. And that people is supposed to display who Christ is. That people is supposed to be holy. That people is to abstain from things that Christ would say, that is unclean, don't go there. 
So look at 1 Corinthians 5. It is actually reported that there is sexually immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled, that's when the temple assembles, that's when the priesthood assembles. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are in leaven. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy swindlers and idolaters, since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. He's a so-called brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. What is Paul's point? He's saying... You're the local temple. You're a people by this new Passover that Christ has done, this new exodus. You are bound together. You are shown to be a priesthood. Through, you are known through baptism. You are known through the Lord's Supper. But here you've got a so-called brother. He's saying, I'm a Christian, but he's not walking as Christ would have him walk. What is the whole membership to do? The whole membership is to say, Sorry, brother, unless you repent, you are showing that you're not actually a brother. And we're going to disassociate from you. We're not going to even eat with you. Meaning what? Not just, okay, we're not going to have that guy in our house, but we're going to stop eating the Lord's Supper with you. The very meal that shows we're a new covenant people. Serious business. And remember, Jesus, this isn't just oh, yeah, you're going to willy-nilly do this. Jesus gave the keys, the authority, and the teaching to back all of this up. So when we talk about what is, what's the job of the members, well, broadly, we would say to make disciples. Well, how do they do that? Members as priests proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. Members as priests install new priests through baptism. Members as priests teach one another to obey Jesus. Members as priests affirm partnership in Christ, with Christ and with each other through the Lord's table. Members as priests guard the sanctuary through discipline. What I want you to leave with, now, like I said at the beginning, I can't go into all the nitty-gritty details of what does it look like during the week to be the membership, to act these offices, we're giving the headlines of this is what the job entails. What I want you to leave with is this. The members have a significant office and are directly accountable to Christ for how they execute it. Revelation 2 through 3, Jesus talks to not pastors, not elders, to churches. And he says, 
Church in Laodicea, here's what you're doing good, here's what you're doing bad, here's where you need to change. Church in Ephesus, here's what you're doing good, here's what you're doing bad, here's how you need to change. Because what are the churches described as? Lampstands, beacons, temples in the world to proclaim God, the one true God. Jesus will hold the membership of Faith Bible Church accountable to do its job well. How we proclaim, how we teach. You know, they say, well, wait a minute, you're teaching. Yeah, but how was I installed? Through the members. How you baptize, how you do the Lord's Supper, how you do discipline, all of that is part of the Great Commission. All of it is part of the display of the gospel in the local church. It's not in the hands of the elders. All of those tasks that we just talked about today they're in the hands of the corporate body, the members. What do the elders do then? Why do we even have you? That's next week. And the next two weeks, really. So come back. Why? Why does Jesus care about this? Why do we care about it? Because it's all about Jesus through the gospel, making a people and then that people manifesting that they are indeed that gospel people. It shows the exclusivity of God's particular love for his people. Did you know that God doesn't love everyone the same way? God has a very particular exclusive love for those whom he has chosen before eternity passed to belong to him and has ransomed through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and has in the Holy Spirit has now indwells. God shows an exclusive love, and he guards his people. He guards his bride, and it is an exclusive love, and he wants to proclaim that to the world. So church members, members of FBC, you do your work by making disciples. Let's pray. Jesus, you call a people you give us a job, and it is a glorious job. It is a, it is a sober job, but it is, it is joyful. And Lord, we pray that we would be a church that performs our priestly duty, lest we be found unfaithful, lest we be found lacking in the day of judgment. Lord, help us to do that. Help us to work together well as members, elders, and deacons of this local church that we might be pleasing to you that we might manifest the gospel clearly, distinctly, not only in our proclamation, but as a people and how we act and how we behave, as we love one another, as we serve one another, as we care for one another, as we go out into the world and serve others and proclaim the gospel. Help us. Give us strength, Holy Spirit, we would ask. In the name of Jesus, amen.